You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Are we sleepy? Good morning. Oh, that's way better. I need uh, I need you guys to help keep me awake this morning, okay? And the coffee. Anybody try those new uh, coffee beverages we have out in the lobby? Yeah, that's a new thing that we're doing here. So I hope you enjoy all the sugar. So I am now on the third time of having my identity stolen. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, hackers got into my Facebook account, posted some stuff, and got me kicked off Facebook for who knows how long, which actually is not all that bad of a thing. But... <laughs> But I was, I was sitting down a couple weeks ago to get to work for the day, and I got a notification on my phone after I had been kicked out of Facebook that your Facebook password just got reset or just got changed. And I'm like, oh no, they are in my Facebook right now changing my password. So I go into my email, and I'm able to somehow like change the password back and get it fixed. But as I'm working in my email, I then get kicked out of my email and a not- another notification to my phone that says, your email password was just changed, and you need to log back in. And I'm like, this is an all-out war. Like, that, the hackers are in my email right now. They're in my Facebook. Like, we're going, we're going to go real time at it. Man, I'm ready to do battle here. And, uh, and so I'm able to get back in my email through my phone number and all that stuff, and it happens again. I get kicked out of my email again. And literally, eight times back and forth, I get into my email my email password gets reset by these stupid hackers, and then I get kicked out of my email again. I could even see, like, based on location, like there were logins from Chicago, Illinois. Like, it was just this whole thing, super annoying, wasted like a ton of time on this, just getting kicked out of my email, having to reset. Finally, though, finally, I defeated the hackers this, that morning. I was able, <laughs> sort of. Don't clap too quickly. I. Uh, <laughs> I, I changed my password. They were not able to get back in. It was all good. And so a couple hours later, I called my wife, and I was like, I just got to tell you this story. I am so angry. And uh, I wasted so much time that morning, but I finally beat them. I won. I went back and forth, blah, blah, blah. She's listening patiently to me. And my wife, Sam, calmly and patiently responds to me. And she goes, Brad, those were not hackers in your email. That was me. I was trying to help you get back into your Facebook and so that was me. And I, so, my, I swear my life sometimes is just a sermon story waiting to happen. Um, <laughs> and so I gently hung up on her. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't hang up on her. But what I, here's the thing. So what I thought about this story was that it was a story of victory, no matter how minor for me, but really it was just a story of defeat. I thought I had won against the hackers that morning. I'm still not in my Facebook account. I thought I had won against the hackers, but really I just lost because I lost an hour of my life battling my wife in email. I I miscategorized the story in my life. I thought it was a story of victory, but it was really a story of defeat. And, And I think we miscategorize stories in our lives all the time. 
Like for some of us, there are stories in our lives that God desires to use to tell his story of victory, and yet we have classified them in our lives as stories of defeat, as stories of loss. There are stories in our lives where we have taken on the role of a victim, and Jesus has actually said, I want to tell your story, I want to tell my story of victory through you. We miscategorize stories in our lives all the time. Maybe for you it's a story of a relational betrayal or a trauma or a significant loss in life. And you've called it a story of defeat, and Jesus is desiring to call it a story of victory. I'm not minimizing real trauma and real victimhood that so many people have walked through but I wonder if we are too quick sometimes in our lives to classify, miscategorize things as defeat that Jesus wants to call victory for him. And so Jesus was no stranger to this. This is the first Sunday of Lent today, which is this period of time in the church calendar where we turn our attention, our posture, our hearts towards the cross and ultimately the resurrection. And as we move into this part of the series uh, last week and and continuing this week, Jesus' crucifixion story, his redemption story at first glance looks like a story of defeat. It is a story that if we're not careful is easy to miscategorize. This man is arrested and he's in a mock kind of sham trial and it looks for all intents and purposes like a story of defeat and every single person around Jesus would have thought that same thing. Jesus is arrested. He's being tried. He's being sentenced to be crucified. This is not a story of victory, except they miscategorized it. Because Jesus, in the midst of this, was unveiling a story of victory when everybody around him thought it was a story of defeat, of loss. And so today what I want to do is I want to just look at the crucifixion narrative of Jesus. I want to take a look at this story and how Matthew, one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, tells his story of crucifixion, not as a story of defeat, but actually as a story of victory. And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And uh, we're going to be in verse 27 here. Matthew 27, 27. This is what it says. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now maybe you read that and you're thinking to yourself, that sure doesn't sound like a story of victory. That sounds a lot more like a story of victimhood. He is brutally mocked. He's beaten. He's belittled. He's led through the streets in this sham parade. This does not sound like a story of victory. But if Matthew wanted to tell this story purely as a story of victimhood in this honor and shame culture, which is very different than our culture, he would not have gone into this level of detail about Jesus' trial and arrest and crucifixion. He just wouldn't have. 
He would have preserved what little of Jesus' honor would have been left in this culture by skimming over the details of crucifixion. In fact, in this world, you do not talk about crucifixion. Just like we don't talk about Bruno, okay? You don't talk about all the parents of young kids in the room get it. Nobody else does. But just, <laughs> you don't talk about crucifixion. You just didn't. You, you glossed over it. You skipped over the gory details. And yet here Matthew is telling this detail by detail in just an excruciating, like painstaking way. Why does he do this? Because this isn't a story of defeat. He's telling a story of victory. In fact, in this world, when Roman emperors would go out to war and they'd conquest, what they would do is they would come back and they'd host what was called a, a Roman triumph, where they would bring back the spoils of their victory and present them to the people. A Roman triumph was like a military parade where they would march through the streets. And what are some of the details of what happened in a Roman triumph? Well, they would have a robe placed on their back as the emperor. They would have a wreath or a crown placed on their head as an emperor being marched through the streets. They would have a rod placed in their hand as they were marched through the streets. And as they marched through the streets, people would yell, Hail Caesar. Jesus has the robe. He has the crown. He has the march through the streets. He has the hailing chants. And yet this is a picture of him being belittled and mocked and scorned. So how can I say Matthew is telling a story of victory here? Because Jesus defines victory differently than you and I do. In fact, Jesus defines victory way different than our world does. In fact, if I were to give a definition in our world today and in big ways and small ways, how we look at victory, this is how we often view victory in our world, that it's defined as gaining power for my own sake, power over another person, the ability to control another person or one-up another person, gaining power for my own sake. But Jesus defines victory way differently than that. He defines victory as giving up power for the sake of the world. In fact, if there was one area in Jesus' life and ministry where he was tempted perhaps more than any other place, where he would have said, this is an area of defeat if I give into this temptation, it had everything to do with this. It was the temptation to skip the cross, to circumvent the suffering, to avoid the cross, to get the benefits of the cross without the cost of the cross. In fact, right when Jesus kicked off his ministry, you see it. He's, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, super hungry, having fasted for 40 days, and he has an encounter with the devil. And this is what the devil tempts Jesus with in Matthew 4. This is what it says. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me, right? This is the world story of victory. Gain power to dominate others. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil is offering Jesus victory without the cost of the cross. This is the temptation here, and Jesus wants nothing to do with that. But it's not just Satan that tempts him in this way. His, his very disciples, his very closest followers have this same mentality. 
just a couple chapters later in Matthew 16, right after his disciple Peter confesses him as the Messiah, as the Lord. This is what happens right next. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter, who obviously knew better than Jesus, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see this temptation for Jesus continuing to play out? Jesus, you can have the victory of the cross without the cost of the cross. You can have all of the spoils of victory without the cross itself. And for Jesus, he saw the cross as victory. The last time Jesus was presented with this same temptation was when he was hanging on the cross in excruciating agony, excruciating pain. And what are the people around him saying? What are the people hanging next to him saying? Well, they're doing this. If you go on to Matthew 27 here, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribe and elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Are we seeing how often the same exact temptation is playing itself out in Jesus' life? You see, what everyone around him saw as defeat, Jesus saw as victory. They miscategorized it. They miscategorized the story as one of defeat. Now, as I read these different stories from Jesus' life, I find myself asking, what would have happened if Jesus would have stepped into those temptations? Like, what would have happened if he took the devil at his temptation or even his friend Peter at his temptation? What would have happened? Well, we don't have to wonder. Because what would have happened is the same story that every single one of our lives and every single human life to ever have lived has always told. For Jesus to take what he wanted in those moments for himself would have just been another version of Adam and Eve taking the fruit in the Garden of Eden. It would have just been another version of David seeing Bathsheba, what is good for himself, and taking that for himself. It would have been another version of Solomon seeing all of this wealth and all of this opulence and hoarding for himself. This is just the story that humanity has told over and over and over again. And Jesus is actually the only one who rewrites the story and tells a different one. And I got to tell you, this is the same story that our world is continuing to tell even today. It's the same one. Like it's easy for us to look at someone like Vladimir Putin and what he's doing right now, which is wrong on so many levels, but you don't know what you would do with absolute power over a group of people. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. I don't know that I would do anything all that different if I had absolute power over a group of people for my life like that. But this doesn't just happen on a global scale. It happens in your life in my life individually. 
It happens when we feel the need to tear others down, to build ourselves up. It's a short-sighted view of victory. It happens when we are quick to hide our own flaws while pointing out the flaws in other people. It's a short-sighted view of victory. It happens when we use fear to manipulate others or when we hold on to unforgiveness with white knuckles as a means to control other people. But it doesn't just happen for adults. It happens for kids too. This is why kids bully each other at school. Short-sighted view of victory. I can put you down and build myself up. It's why your pastor can waste an hour of his life battling his wife online thinking he's beating hackers. Because we have short-sighted views of victory. And we already know where this short-sighted view of victory leads. That's why Jesus is so different. He doesn't take the easy road to victory. He takes the path of the cross. You see, if there is one thing everybody around Jesus would have agreed upon, whether they're Pharisees or scribes or Roman officials or just the average crowd person, they would have all agreed on one thing. There's not much they would have agreed on. This one thing they would have agreed on, that the cross looked like a symbol of defeat for Jesus. And Jesus appropriates the meaning of the cross and turns it into a symbol of victory. How many of you are wearing a cross right now, like on a necklace or something like that? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason like people do that because it has been appropriated. You would have never seen cross necklaces in the Roman Empire. They were a symbol of shame, and now Christians all around the world celebrate it as a symbol of victory because Jesus rewrote that story. He reframed it from a symbol of defeat and shame into a symbol of victory and celebration. And if he can do that with something as powerful as a Roman Empire executing him on the cross, who are you to say he cannot do the same thing with stuff in your life? Who are you to say that he cannot rewrite stories that you have written off as stories of defeat or loss as stories of victory in your life? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you moved out into this world from a place of victory that has been claimed on your behalf? Can you imagine how that would change relationships in your life? Can you imagine the freedom from shame that you would experience as you move out into this world from a place of victory? Friends, there is only one place on this planet where you can go and have stories that the world calls stories of shame and defeat turned into stories of victory, and you don't even have to prove yourself, where is that one place? It is the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're taking notes today and you write down one statement, take this to the bank with you, take this home with you, that sin redeemed in my life becomes the greatest story of victory my life can tell. And you don't even have to use the word sin there. You can use one of the effects of sin. Maybe, maybe you put the word shame in there. Shame redeemed in my life becomes the greatest story of victory my life can tell. Loss or grief redeemed in my life becomes the greatest story of victory my life can tell. Anger redeemed in my life becomes the greatest story of victory my life can tell. We all have a story that is bursting with potential for redemption. But here's the catch. This is the catch. Don't miss this. If that's going to happen, 
You cannot get there by avoiding the cross. You cannot get there by avoiding the cross. That Jesus' story of victory in your life always involves a cross. It always involves death to old patterns, death to old ways, putting a death to old things. Just like a seed planted in the ground that is buried, that has to die to itself so that new life can come out of it. This is the same exact rhythm in our lives. Some of you have stories in your lives that you have miscategorized as defeat for your entire life. And the result of that is you have walked around in every area of your life with a victim mentality, with your head held low, like you don't have any options or choices when God is saying, hey, hey, look at my cross. I'm desiring to tell a story of victory through your life, not one of defeat. I'm desiring to tell a different story. Like that abuse you have endured, that hurts me just like it hurt you. I can tell a story of victory with that. Will you let me? That loss you have suffered, believe me, that pain hurts me just like it hurts you. But I can tell a story of victory with that. Will you let me? That pain you have caused other people, believe me, that hurts me just like it hurts you. But I can tell a story of victory with that story. For me, it's my own struggles that I've shared many times with mental health and, and depression. And, and God is writing a story of victory through that. Not because I don't struggle with that stuff anymore. Not because there's not any tension there. But it has allowed me to sit with people in a different way as a pastor. And I see other people struggling with that. Sin or shame redeemed in our lives becomes the greatest story of victory that our lives can tell. And so why is it, and maybe you've wondered this too, that you can take two people who have walked through something nearly identical to each other. Maybe it's a significant loss. Maybe it's a significant heartache or abuse. Maybe they've hurt somebody. And on one hand, one person can come out with all kinds of bitterness and anger and just walls up all over. And the other person can come out of that experience with a beautiful story to tell, with a view of their life that is bursting with potential for redemption. Why is it that two people can go through the same exact thing and have such different outcomes? Because it's not what happens to us that pushes us closer or further away from God. Not the event that happened to you that pushes you to God or away from God. It's what you do with that event. It's how you interpret it. It's the story you tell in your mind about that event. That's what pushes you towards God or away from God. Like I said, there are two types of people in the world. The first are those who view every part of their lives as bursting with potential to tell a redemption story. And there's another group of people that views every part of their lives as an opportunity to tell a story of victimhood. Which type of person are you? Which type of person are you? There's, there's a guy in our church uh, named Jason who I don't think is in here. Uh, is he up there? Oh, it's, lights are bright. It's dark back there. Hi, Jason. So Jason is our bass player standing in the back there on stage, and you see him here most Sundays. And um, I've affectionately uh, nicknamed Tim the guy who bounces. Okay, So he's like the bouncing guy on stage. I love watching Jason worship. Like It's one of my favorite things in the world. But what you may not know about Jason 
is that Jason has a story behind his Tigger mannerisms. He has a story. That for Jason, this year in October, he will be celebrating 10 years of sobriety in his life. Yeah, I mean... And not only that, but he had done time in prison and has an incredible redemptive story that God is telling in his life. And he'll be the first to tell you his life is not some neat kind of buttoned up pretty package at this point. Him and his family have walked through significant trials even this year, even this month. But this is what I love about my friend Jason that you cannot be around him for more than two minutes without seeing that his life is bursting with potential for redemption, that the sin and the junk that has been redeemed in his life is the greatest story of victory his life can tell. He doesn't bounce because he's had too many Red Bulls. He bounces because the story of victory has gotten into his bones. That's why he bounces but it involved going to a cross every time. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, that's great, but I'm still addicted to the bottle, or I'm still navigating the pain of the divorce, or I'm still looking at porn every single day. And if that's you, if you're in an I'm still situation, I want to talk to you just for a moment this morning. If you're in an I'm still situation, welcome to the club. Every single one of us in one way, shape, or form is in an I'm still situation. I still lose my patience with my kids. That's an I'm still area for me. If you knew my kids, you'd understand why, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I know, right? I know. I act like my kids are especially naughty. They're great kids, but yeah. Anyways, I should be nicer to them. One of them's sick right now. So anyways... So, and I'm going to go home and love on her and treat her really well. So, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. When you trip, when you stumble, not if, when, I'm not as interested in what happens in that first stumble or that first trip, because we all do that. I still do that. We all stumble, we all trip from time to time. What I'm far more interested in is not that first one, but what do you do after that? What do you do with that? Do you allow that stumble to push you away from community, to push you away from the church, to push you away from the cross? Or do you use that stumble as a way to push you towards the cross, to invite Jesus to tell a greater story of redemption through your life? Why do I care more about the next step than the first step? Because that seemed to be what Jesus cared more about. That same exact disciple, Peter, from Matthew 16, while Jesus is being brutally tried and mocked and, and crucified, what is Peter doing? He is avoiding that cross like the plague. He is running as far away as he possibly can, and he has encounters with person after person the night Jesus is arrested. That says, hey, you're one of his friends, aren't you? And Peter says, nope, don't want the cross. I'm going to stay as far away as I can from that. Three different times this happens with Peter's life. Peter trips. He stumbles. He falls. What does he do with that? After Jesus' resurrection, where they sit on a beach together and cook fish for breakfast, and Jesus 
says, Peter, that story of sin in your life, I actually want to use it to tell my story of victory. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then this is your charge to go out into the world and to tell my redemption story to the world because sin redeemed in your life can become the greatest story of victory that your life can tell. And so the next step you take after you mess up, the next step you take after you trip, the next step you take after you stumble reveals everything you believe about the cross of Jesus Christ. If you sin and you trip and you stumble and that leads you to a place where you want to walk away from the cross, you want to walk away from the community of the church, then you do not understand the message of the cross to begin with. You see, the cross is the place where we bring this stuff. And far too often in the church, maybe we've heard messages like this before too in church experiences that we've had. Far too often we send this message here that if you are wrestling with something, if you are struggling with something, you go kind of deal with that on your own, get yourself kind of cleaned up, and then when you come back and you're all neat and clean, then we'll celebrate victory in your life. It's not the gospel. Not even close. It's not the gospel that you clean yourself up and then we celebrate victory. The gospel is that we can celebrate victory in our lives before we even see it come to fruition because of what Jesus has done. We sang a song, first song we sang today, I will see a victory. I will name that in my life. I will claim that in my life. That sounded really prosperity-ish. Ugh. But <laughs> I will name that. I will call things victory in my life. Because of what Jesus has done. I love how Romans 5 says this. This is this in verse 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God, I love that, but God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the cross is not clean yourself up, come forward, and then we'll celebrate victory in your life. The message of the cross is you're a drunk, bring that bottle to the cross. You're a sex addict, bring that porn-filled computer to the cross. You're a recent divorcee, bring those tear-stained divorce papers to the cross. You're a dad who struggles with rage and anger. Bring that door you just smashed into the cross and lay it down. That's the invitation of the cross because sin redeemed in our lives is the greatest story of redemption your life can tell. And so what next step will you take towards the cross? Like maybe you're in a place here this morning where you have messed up, where you are tempted. You have a fork on the road and you can go one of two directions. And the invitation for you today, friend, here and right now is to take steps towards the cross, not away from the cross. To take steps towards community, not away from community. You see, when Paul articulates why the cross is such a symbol of victory in your life and in my life, this is how he says it in Colossians 2. And this is from the message version. I love the way this articulates it. This is what he says, entering into this fullness is not something you figure out or achieve. It's not a matter of being circumcised or keeping a long list of laws. No, you're already in. Insiders, not through some secretive initiation rite, but rather through what Christ has already gone through for you, destroying the power of sin. This is victory language here. 
Reading on, if it's an initiation ritual you're after, you've already been through it by submitting to baptism. Going under the water was a burial of your old life. Coming up out of it is a resurrection. God raising you from the dead as he did Christ. When you were stuck in your old sin life, you were incapable of responding to God. And then I love this last part here. God brought you alive. He brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that all the rest weren't canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. And then this last line I think is my favorite. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. That is a story of Roman triumph. That is a story of victory. That like a Roman triumph, through the streets, in the midst of a story that looked like victimhood or defeat, Jesus was making a mockery of how powerless sin actually is in our lives when we give our lives to him. And notice how he doesn't do it. Notice he doesn't march you naked in shame through the streets, saying, look at this person, look at Brad, look at his sin here, look at this, look at this. Shame him, mock him, hurl insults on him. He doesn't do that for any of us. What does he do? He takes that position himself. Insult me. Mock me. Hurl shame on me. And in that, he robs sin of all power it can ever have in your life, and he offers you an invitation to join in a parade of victory. Will you receive that invitation? In two weeks from now, we get to celebrate baptism on this stage. Baptism is one of the ways, one of the most clear-cut ways we have to celebrate the victory of the cross in each other's life. Baptism is probably my top favorite thing that we get to do here at the church because it is always a story of victory. It is not a story of perfect people who clean their lives up, came to a tank, and now are getting baptized, saying, look at me, look how clean I am. No, our prerequisite for baptism is you have to be an imperfect person to get in this tank, okay? No perfect people allowed. But what I love about baptism is that every single time somebody gets baptized, it is a death-to-life story of Jesus' victory in their life. I brought a picture of somebody that got baptized back in October. This is Lexi. And uh, some of you know Lexi, but I, I will say this. In my conversations with Lexi leading up to her baptism, I don't know that I've had many conversations with people who were as excited to get baptized as Lexi was. I mean, she just was ecstatic. And one of the things she asked me before she got baptized she said, hey, do you mind if my mom and my stepdad, Harley, can come and help baptize me? And I said, um, yes, like, of course they can. In fact, that's one of my favorite things, when people help in the baptism of somebody they've walked with and loved. I think it's a beautiful thing. But baptism isn't just a powerful moment for people who are in the tank. It's actually a powerful moment that all of us get to share in with each other. In fact, Harley, her stepdad, his best friend came into church that morning in October. And he came into church that morning with his head hung and feeling defeated and just asking the question, am I doing anyone any favors by even being here? I hear this a lot from people in the church. I heard this this morning already from people. Like even coming into this place was a giant step of faith towards the cross for some people. I've been in this place on Sundays. But then this guy saw his best friend, Harley, get to baptize his daughter. 
And Harley has witnessed his best friend fall flat on his face more times than he can count, struggle with sin, struggle with just anger. And this is how Harley's friend described seeing his best friend baptize his daughter. This is what he said. He said, even through all of my struggles with sin, I realized again that I don't bring perfection to this equation. Jesus does. My role was to keep moving forward and keep moving towards the cross myself. Witnessing my best friend baptize his daughter was the first time I really knew for myself that because of Jesus, my life is bursting with potential for redemption. It was a very liberating moment for me. Friends, I cannot baptize a single person in our church without getting incredibly emotional about it. And it's not just because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a person endeavoring to follow Jesus. And every single time I see somebody make the choice to get in the water, to go under the water and come back up, I see myself in those waters. I see my story of sin and death and burial and resurrection. And that's why baptism is so powerful. So as we prepare as a church to enter into baptism in just a couple weeks from now, I just want to challenge you. There are some of you who have not gotten into the waters of baptism, and you need to be in those waters on March 20. If you are in Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, and you have not yet been baptized, that is your next step. Why? Because your story is bursting with potential for redemption, and people need to see that. For others of you, you have someone in your small group that you've been a part of or somebody that you've been walking with for some time who you know needs to get in that tank on March 20. And your next step is to go have a conversation with them and say, brother, sister, March 20 is your day. You need to get baptized, and I would love to be there cheering you on. So the invitation is there for all of us. What next step will you take towards the cross? Because sin redeemed in your life is the greatest story of victory your life can tell. Let me, uh, let me pray. Oh, and I'll give instructions later on baptism. But let me pray, and then we're going to respond in, in worship this morning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who saw us in our mess, who saw us in the grips of sin in our lives, who saw us with this stronghold. And through the cross, you made a mockery of sin. You nailed it to the cross. And we don't bear it anymore. We're freed from it. And God, may we be the church, the type of church that tells those stories to each other. May we tell those stories through baptism. May we tell those stories through the word of our testimony. May we tell those stories in our small groups and at men's retreats and in our families and around our dining room tables. May we tell the stories that you have turned from defeat into victory. And God, I also pray right now for people who don't yet see it who don't yet see how you are turning their story of loss into a story of victory. God, may those people be reminded that you don't abandon them, that you and the church are right there alongside them, walking 
and stumbling and struggling towards the cross. So Jesus, where we need to carry each other, may we carry each other. Where we need to encourage each other, may we encourage each other and spur each other on towards the cross because that is the place where sin is turned into victory. So Jesus, we love you. And it's in your name alone that we pray this morning. And everybody said, 